Let's turn our Bibles to John chapter 16. John chapter 16, verse 1. We're continuing this morning in our series in the upper room. And looking at John chapter 16, verses 1 through 15, or the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 16, verse 1. This is the word of God. All this I have told you so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he is offering a service to God. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. I have told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you, I did not tell you this at first because I was with you. Now I am going to him who sent me. Yet none of you asked me, where are you going? Because I said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment in regard to sin because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And regard to judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can bear now or now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said, the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. This is God's word. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father in heaven, we ask that as we study your word together this morning, that by your Spirit you would help us to understand, and in understanding that we would apply so that we might be living. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. When the Lord Jesus Christ assembled his, his brothers, the twelve, he didn't assemble them from the finest universities and the finest places of rhetoric in the entire Roman Empire. No, 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 he went to Galilee for the majority of them. They would have had a kind of an accent that everybody would have known, and they were the hicks of the region in the Roman Empire called Palestine. Not known by others for their amazing intellectual capacities or ability for rhetoric, but in fact, these are the men that he chose. 
And we know that his mission was to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to teach them everything that he had commanded them. Everything. It's like an impossible mission, isn't it? An absolutely impossible mission. You mean we have to go out and change the entire planet? We who are the nobodies from society. And then you say to us, oh, by the way, on your mission, they're going to persecute you. They're going to hate you as they hated me. And some, peop some people will actually kill you, and they will be believing that it is, well, it's for the service of God that they put you to death. So you will face all kinds of opposition. And we know that there's only one that died in his bed. Only one of these men would die in his bed as an old man. The rest of them would go to various forms of the gallows. So it is an impossible mission. But the Lord Jesus Christ is calling his men too. And in fact, when you know the human heart, the more you understand the human heart, the more you understand how powerless you are. Maybe this happens as parents. It's very easy when they're in their diapers. But as they get older, it's not so easy to harness those children. It's hard to change someone, isn't it? It's actually impossible. We think we can change people. How's that working for you? Please, how's that working for you? It's not very good, is it? Because people by nature are self-righteous. We're laws unto ourselves. And so when Jesus says to make disciples of all nations, and by the way, they're going to hate you and maybe kill you, this is an impossible mission, isn't it? But how has it been made possible? Because if you look at the world today, I know this is not shocking in the 21st century because we have cathedrals throughout the planet. We have churches on almost every corner in some, in some nations. We see, clearly see the advance of the gospel throughout the nations. But in the first century, there wasn't any church. There was no buildings. There was no structures. There was no institutions. So how is Mission Impossible made possible in the local church, not only in the first century, but the 21st century? That's us. What is Jesus saying in the text? What's obvious from the text? It should just come out your lips like this. The Holy Spirit, isn't it? The Spirit, the Counselor, the Helper, the Paraclete. This is the power that we see has been given to a church that's been given a mission impossible in the flesh. A mission impossible in the flesh. And then Jesus says, oh, by the way, I'm leaving. Now, if your commander is now leaving the battlefield, would that give you a lot of confidence? You can see why they might be anxious this, this night as they're going to the Kidron Valley. He's been saying he's going to leave. He says it again because they hadn't asked him again for a period of time, it appears, because they had already asked him in the upper room where he was going, and here again, where is he going? They didn't ask it. Where are you going? Most likely because they were shell-shocked this night. 
They were trying to take that which they could not take in because drinking from a fire hydrant is not very efficient. And in many ways, this night was like drinking from a fire hydrant. And then Jesus says, I'm leaving again. And it's for your good, isn't it? And if I go, I will send a counselor to be with you. So why is this helpful? Why is it good? What do we know from the beginning of this discourse, of the upper room discourse in chapter 14, is that Jesus is going to make a place for his men. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will go back and take you to be where I am. He's speaking about their preparation for a place in heaven. So that's at least a good, isn't it? A glorious good for these disciples. But also, if he does not leave, the Holy Spirit will not come, whom he will send when he leaves and ascends the staircase into heaven itself. Along with the Father, they will send the Spirit. And what we also learn about the sending of the Spirit that is good and important for the disciples to hear is that the Spirit will no longer merely be with them, but he will be in them. That's very important for us to see in chapter 14, verse 16 and 17. If your Bible's open, you can even see that. And what also we are reminded of in an earlier text, in John chapter 14, verse 26, is that the Spirit will remind them of everything they saw and heard in the ministry of Jesus. Because like I said, and I said it before, it was like drinking from a fire hydrant, the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. But he says, by that same Spirit, I will remind you of all these things. I'll, I'll bring them all back for your recollection. So I'm not leaving you alone. I'm leaving you with one who now can be not only in you, but he can be in everyone. No matter where the saints are, no matter if you're on the North Pole or the South Pole or in China or in Oman, it doesn't matter where you are on the globe, I will be with you, in you. So the coming of the Spirit opens wide the gates of the Spirit of Christ to enter into the peoples of the nations no matter how far they are spread throughout the world. So that mission impossible would be made possible. And that's quite helpful. Quite helpful for us to hear as a church to be reminded even as we see throughout the church in the West a steady decline over the last half century. And of course, we are anxious about that decline in society, and even society now is going through a demographic winter which will soon hit in a way that human history hasn't seen since the plague, which means some countries have a potential of losing half their population in the next hundred years. So this is actually a phenomenon where societies are all growing older or grayer, but there's anxiety, isn't there? All this causes anxiety. I hear it in the church. Oh, the demographic changes that are happening in the Christian Reformed Church. This came up, of course, in, class, in the classes meeting with the churches of Minkota. But again, what are we missing when we only focus on the problems and we only focus on the statistics? Who are we missing in the story of redemption? It's the Holy Spirit. The power is not in the programs. The power is not in the buildings. The power is not even you. The power is in the Holy Spirit. 
And that's wondrous to hear, really. Because some of us know how pathetic we can be. Or how often we have failed. Or no matter how long we have ministered to someone we dearly, desperately love, they still have not come to follow Jesus as their Lord and Savior and have that joy. But Jesus is speaking to you and saying, the power's not in you. It's in me. It's in my spirit. Trust in me. Rest in me, O church of Jesus Christ. Do not put your foundations on gimmicks or special programs, but in me. In me. So what is the work of the Holy Spirit that they are spoken of? And that's really a bit of the focus for this morning is here in verses 8 through 11, verses 8 through 11. The work of the Spirit in the world. Now when you hear this word convict, right there in verse 8, when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. Convict. What is that word? Well, the word means to cross-examine for the purpose of convincing or refuting an opponent. I found that was quite interesting. And before someone comes to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they are not a friend, but they are an enemy of God. And yet God comes to them, convincing them of the truth of the argument that God is making. The Holy Spirit makes this argument to the human heart in order to convince them or to convict them that it is true. And I think that's pretty helpful for us to hear that the Holy Spirit does this work. It's not us. It's not our words. It's not our demeanor. But it's the Holy Spirit. And there's three parts that we see of the work of the Holy Spirit in the world. The first part is to convict the world about sin, convicting the world about righteousness, and convicting the world about judgment. Let's look at all three parts. Convicting the world about sin. Now, you remember that one uh, gentleman in the book of Acts, chapter 16. He was not known for his niceties. He was known for his brutality. For him, if you were a prisoner in his prison, that meant you had to have maximum pain, chain you up in certain ways so that your joints hurt almost to the point where they broke. He was a master of pain. This is the Philippian jailer. Of course, you know the rest of the story, don't you? That as Paul and Silas were in the prison, they were singing hymns, weren't they? They were actually singing the gospel. In their cell, chained to the wall, and an earthquake happened. And it appeared at that very moment that all the prisoners had left, and the Roman soldier, because he had lost his prisoners, was about to kill himself. And they said, no, we're all here. We're all here. And of course, what's that man's response? In that very moment, as he rushed to the feet of Paul and Silas, still in the locks, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Sirs, what must I do to be saved? This overwhelming sense of sin came over the man. 
And of course, what we know is that he was baptized along with his entire family. They repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Was that the work of Paul? Was that because of Paul's wonderful prowess in proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or was that because of God? Well, the, the book of Acts is very clear. It's the acts of the Holy Spirit, isn't it? Yes, the acts of the apostles, they go out, but they're powered by the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that will convict us and the world of sin. It will convict your son or daughter of sin, your grandson or your granddaughter or your husband or your wife of sin and their need of repentance. And when the Holy Spirit does this work, you're not looking at other people and seeing how sinful they are. That's not the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the work of someone self-righteous. Oh, yes, I know I'm not perfect. I know I'm not perfect. But you can always look at somebody else, can't you? You can always look at someone else. But when the Holy Spirit works, you're just seeing your sin as a heinous injustice against God's righteousness. It's humbling, isn't it? But that's, I, that's how God works. He brings sinners to their knees. And you wrestle with your own sin, the own ugliness of your soul. You know, when the Holy Spirit is working, you really don't have much time to think about other sin. You see your own far more than everybody else's. Isn't that what we need in this church? In your own personal life, maybe you struggle with this a lot. You see other people's sins far better than you see your own. That's a heinous evil, by the way. When you come to the Word, that's an evil. That the Holy Spirit says, come away from that. See your own sin and look to Jesus. And look to Jesus. Now, Jesus says something interesting here about sin in verse 9 in regard to sin because men do not believe in me. Hmm. Because men do not believe in me. What does Jesus mean there? What does he mean there? Now, obviously, men do other sins besides not believing in Jesus. But here Jesus ends, again, I'll read it, in regard to sin because men do not believe. I think there might be three options here. One, the essence of sin is that they do not believe. Ultimately, the essence of sin is unbelief. That's what, I, that's what I'm saying. The problem with Adam and Eve's rebellion against God is they did not trust God, did they? They trusted in themselves to rule the garden better than God. So at the essence of sin is one of unbelief, actually. Even we, the saints who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, his sacrificial death and his powerful resurrection. How many times do you struggle to trust God in the circumstances of your life? How many? You have enough digits on your, on your body. You do, we all do it. Second, sort of a, the erroneous idea about sin like rejecting Jesus. This is this part there. And the third is 
I think that John has a way of having double, triple, quadruple meanings. When he writes something, he sort of leaves it out there. Because this statement is very interesting. He just sort of places it out there. Could it also mean, I think it, this would be true too, that it's speaking about the egregious, egregious depths of sin that are seen in our failure to believe in Jesus. In the end, that's the worst thing. That's the one thing that will condemn us, won't us, on judgment day. You did not believe in my son. When you come before the judgment seat of God on that day when the gavel comes down, you did not believe in my son. That sin God cannot forgive. Can he? Because it's only through faith in Jesus Christ that a man or a woman can be saved. Now, Jesus also talks about convincing the world about righteousness. I found this to be very interesting. Convincing the world about righteousness. What kind of righteousness is, is Jesus speaking about? Now, I believe this is the righteousness of himself and of his sacrificial death upon the cross declared powerfully in his resurrection. Because it's only through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ that you and I can be forgiven of our sins, right? And stand before the perfect righteousness of God because not only are our sins forgiven, but his perfect, glorious righteousness has been imputed to you and to me and to all who have believed. But the convicting the world about righteousness is an important thing to speak about because in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13, we read this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And if a Jew was to hear that only in the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ that you can be saved, this would have been an egregious offense to their ears because people who are hung on the cross are cursed. How do you convince a Jew that God himself became man and took the curse upon himself and was cursedly crucified on a cross. Is that, can you persuade him by rhetoric? By the force of your ideas? How does a man like Paul who persecuted the church and actually enjoyed the death of Stephen and the imprisonment of many others, how does he come to the end of himself? Well, he meets the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe, too, that's in the power of the Spirit. He meets him. And the Jew that would have rejected the reality that God become man and then be cursed is a man three days later whose scales fall from his eyes and he says, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and is baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That could only be happened because of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit to demonstrate to our self-righteous hearts that only the sacrifice of Jesus will do. Only God becoming man and being the sacrifice for sin can forgive you and make you righteous. You can give plenty of arguments, but unless the Spirit is working, no one will believe. And lastly, lastly, the convicting 
world, convicting the world about judgment. And that is an interesting text in verse 11. He says, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Now, if you go back to John chapter 12, verse 31, we said now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. What is Jesus referring to, this idea of judgment? Is he talking about your judgment? What judgment is he talking about? Well, you see, the context is Satan, isn't it? It's the prince of the air. It's the judgment upon him and his kingdom. Because in the cross of Christ is the defeat of Satan himself. And thus the power to condemn has been nullified in the cross of Christ. And what do we say in question and answer? Number one, he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. That's what the word of God says. And, and if you could see this in 1 John chapter 2, verse 13, I want to read, write, I want to read, because it says I write. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God lives in you, and you have overcome the evil one. You've overcome his judgments. He can never say of you and show you to be guilty. For there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, right? No condemnation. When Christ goes to the cross, his last words are to tell us, it is finished. The work that I have come to do is finished. The atoning sacrifice has been made. The condemnation that was upon us has been placed upon him. And now we are forgiven. No longer able to be condemned by the evil one. No longer. In, in fact, if you go to 1 John chapter 5, verse 18, there's some beautiful words for many of us saints to hear. Especially those who have, have had that experience of feeling they're being oppressed or opposed by the evil one. It says, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps him safe. And the evil one cannot harm him. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Again, it's speaking to that control of the world in unbelief. And so, brothers and sisters, this week we, have, we go back to our life, our world, our places of work, our families, some of our families. Hey, this, the fact is, when you, the, more, the longer you live, the more mess you see in your own family, the more heartaches you see in your own family. It's easy to be discouraged, but what we see here is that the convicting power of the Holy Spirit is the confidence of the Christian, isn't it? His work in me. His work in those I love. That's my confidence to witness. I don't have to be an expert. I don't know, need to know the four spiritual laws. I don't have to have evangelism explosion training. I can be a witness because of the Holy Spirit. His powerful work in the world, in my own heart, and my own life. And of course, Jesus encourages them more 
as you go to verse 13, that he will send the Holy Spirit and he will guide them into all truth. I think some of us might not know how to share the gospel effectively to others. Well, you know, the Holy Spirit can help you in that, right? He indwells us as a church. The word is before you, the sword of the spirit, right? That can help you in that endeavor so that you might be a, a more effective witness and the body of believers indwelt by the Holy Spirit is there also to encourage you and help you and to give you counsel, whether that's an elder or myself or someone else, to not only encourage you but to equip you in order that the spirit would guide you in speaking about Jesus so that they might taste and see how good and glorious and beautiful Jesus is. And they're not going to learn that except through the power of the Spirit. It's not in your hands or in your mouth or in your charisma. It's in, it's in the Spirit. To God be the glory for sovereign salvation. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for the work of the Holy Spirit that indwells us. Encourage your saints because many of us are discouraged. Encourage us by your love. Encourage us by that wonderful, powerful presence of the Spirit in us. But also embolden us to speak your word. And may we as the church be encouraging each other by the Spirit, for we are indwelt by the Spirit, to do that blessed work. Bless your blood-bought, spirit-indwelt people for your glory. Amen.